Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Features and Analysis Writer at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. Later, I'll be speaking to Mind's Dane Cranberger about how we can support the mental health of charity workers. And we'll hear from Extinction Rebellion protesters about whether they feel charities should be getting more involved with direct action. But first, I want to talk about charity campaigning more widely. Charities obviously provide frontline services, but they often campaign for laws or government policy to be changed to help their beneficiaries too. In recent years, many feel that government has become increasingly unsympathetic to this idea, with the introduction of measures like the Lobbying Act, which means that all charities planning to spend more than £20,000 on campaigning in the year before an election have to register in advance. People have expressed concerns that things like this have a chilling effect, making charities reluctant to speak out for fear of breaking the rules. There was also the anti-advocacy clause, also known as the gagging clause, which effectively prevented charities which had received government funding from speaking out against government policies, although this was eventually dropped. With research showing that almost half of charity campaigners believe the climate for campaigning has gotten worse over the past year, I want to understand why there's a feeling that Whitehall's intolerance has increased. Is this concern justified? And what other factors might be at play here? I'm going to speak to Claire Laxton, Associate Director for Policy and Influencing at Click Sargent, and the National Council for Voluntary Organisations Head of Communications, Chloe Stables, to explore more. Chloe, Claire, lovely to meet you both today. So a Sheila McKechnie Foundation report in January found that 49% of charity campaigners thought the campaigning environment had got worse for charities over the past year. And 93% of respondents said campaigning was under threat. From your point of view, what is the environment around campaigning at the moment? I think it's definitely feeling like it's under threat. Although I was reflecting on this issue and thinking, actually, as a charity campaigner, it's quite hard to be objective because I see brilliant campaigns everywhere all the time. So we're probably in a bit of a campaigning bubble. But I think when you look at, you know, some of the impacts of government legislation and other things that are happening, you really feel that, you know, campaigning is under threat. And actually, I feel like there's also probably a bit less listening to each other and really engaging in debate rather than seeing us on opposite sides of a debate and I think that also has quite a threatening impact on campaigning too. Yeah I mean I think things are tough definitely you know we've had a period of prolonged austerity we've got Brexit and a whole host of other things that have been going on around the campaigning environment but I think it's important to say that We shouldn't talk ourselves out of campaigning. Mm. You know, it's not impossible. And there are some incredible campaigns out there making waves, you know, and there's some really seriously impressive stuff happening. We've had big names like Mine, Shelter, you know, through to smaller organisations like the South or Black Sisters, you know, getting campaigns that really hit home and make change happen. And I think it's it's really important to recognise that change is still happening and campaigners are doing an incredible job. So it's been five years since the introduction of the Lobbying Act and at the time that was introduced there were lots of concerns about the impact on charities but other voices have since said that it's been overstated. What effect do you think it's had on charity campaigning? I think to say that the impact of the Lobbying Act has sort of been overstated and maybe isn't as bad as it could have been, I don't agree with that position Just the other day when I tweeted saying, you know, what is a big issue for charities at the moment? When you get chief executives of charities coming back to you saying the lobbying act, like it needs to be repealed. I think that shows that it still is a big issue. And I think the challenging thing about the lobbying act, it's the sort of tacit impact that it has. So Mm. it will have people questioning whether they 
send a tweet out or go to that meeting or say this thing in public. And that's really hard to measure. It's more how people feel. And I think actually, you know, the lobbying act itself, it makes a mockery of its own law because it's just a terrible piece of legislation as it's written. And if we actually go back to the point of it, which, if you remember, was lots of dispatches programmes, looking at private companies, paying MPs to to sort of lobby and and campaign in Parliament. As far as I can tell, you know, charities weren't doing that. And I don't think the Act has actually addressed the issue that it was designed to address and instead has just created a whole band of confusion and uncertainty for charities in their campaigning and really put a focus on it. And I think... You know, it is still having an impact and I'm not really sure why the government is still committed to it as a piece of legislation, to be honest. The Lobbying Act definitely has caused confusion among campaigners and definitely in some cases it has caused them to be much more cautious and risk averse, I think, about their campaigning. But I have to be really honest and say... I don't think that we receive as many calls about the Lobbying Act as we used to. I think when it was first introduced, it caused a lot of concern and confusion. Mm -hmm. But I do do think now it has bedded down a bit. I think people are a bit more um, used to it uh, now. And what we hear a lot from from our members is actually concerns that actually relate to CC9 rather than things that relate to the Lobbying Act. So CC9 um, is the Charity Commission guidance on campaigning. Exactly, on campaigning and elections and often it will be about you know can they respond to a policy that's announced as part of a manifesto package you know can they invite certain people onto a panel for hustings or not invite people onto a panel for hustings Mm. Um, you know and a lot of this is about CC9 and political neutrality and I do think that the lobbying act definitely is flawed I think it needs reform we would definitely like to see the Hodgson recommendations implemented without doubt but I think it's really important to recognise that charities can still campaign under under these rules and you know the vast majority of campaigning is is not in any way mm. touched by the lobbying act rules that were introduced so the other kind of legal instrument that was kind of mooted at one point was the anti-advocacy clause or mm-hmm. the gagging clause, which would have introduced a clause into all government grant agreements, effectively preventing charities from using the money to try and influence government policy. But 62% of respondents to the SMK survey said they thought conditions attached to funding were still an issue, even though it's the anti-advocacy clause didn't happen. Um, so is this something that's still affecting charities? So on the anti-advocacy clause, I think it obviously has been taken away and replaced by grant standards. We then have seen other things kind of pop up like anti-publicity clauses. And when challenged, you know, the government has been pretty quick to clarify that actually it in no way is intending to stop charities from speaking out when they're in receipt of public funds. And there was a, a letter from Theresa May to our chief executive, Stuart Etherington, clarifying that. And I think that's that's really helpful. I don't want to massively overstate the case in terms of oh that's kind of all solved because that's clearly not uh, the case and And there's a difference between intention and and the effect perhaps yeah absolutely and I think the things that you know we would say is if, if you have a clause in one of these contacts please do come and talk to your umbrella bodies us Akivo others about it because we can have conversations with departments about those clauses we can say look this goes against the spirit of the letter that was sent from Theresa May we, we can help to kind of assist and I also think there's a point about if you're unhappy with those clauses then perhaps you do really need to think about whether 
whether you should be signing those contracts in the first place. And I know that's not a clear-cut issue. I know it's very complex. But if there are things in your in your grant agreements or your contracts that you're not comfortable with that you think might limit your ability to speak out on your beneficiaries, then, you know, I, I do think there is a case for, for treading fairly carefully. I think one of the things around this issue for me is... Often you hear about organisations who have maybe challenged, gone back to departments to challenge some of the clauses and the departments um, have often been like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it doesn't really, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry. And I think that's fine if as an organisation you have the power and agency to live with that level of risk. Mm. But I guess if, you know, if you're an organisation who relies on that one grant to deliver your services and sustain yourselves, then actually just someone in the department saying, oh, don't worry, it's okay, isn't reassuring oh, enough. That's a big yeah. question, why is it there in the well, first place? Exactly. Yeah. It just it's like a waste of feels a bit pointless if, if it's not an issue. So why is it in there? So yeah. I think there's definitely an issue there of, of power and how much agencies those organisations do have to go back and be like, no, this isn't good enough. We can't sustain that level of risk with this contract. And I think it is difficult to go back on a one-on-one mm. kind of basis. I think it's much better if you can have a broader conversation about the department's 100%. approach to grant agreements and funding and campaigning. And if you can do that with others, with infrastructure, with your umbrella bodies, then I think it, it's all the more powerful. And you know, I think we do have to look at some of the signs around campaigning so you know the grant agreements um the guidance that was introduced by cabinet office actually quite encouraging in terms of campaigning we've had some really warm words in the civil society strategy we've had the letter from Theresa may you know around anti-publicity clauses and i think building up a bit of a like you government have said that this is okay but yet we still have these contracts and we have these clauses. We need to kind of get rid of that that, that inconsistency. And that's where organisations like NCVO really can add that value because, mm-hmm. like you say, you're bringing you're bringing all of that evidence together and helping people take that collective knowledge and action that I think as an individual organisation you you might not be able to do. Absolutely and you know we recognise particularly for smaller organisations that as you say might be dependent on that grant that is really difficult Mm. and hard. And so what else can you sort of talking about sort of wider debates at department level at cabinet office level what can government do to show that it supports or at least doesn't want to block charity campaigning? I think, I mean, as Chloe sort of said already, there's lots of positive movements and discussions coming from government. So the civil society strategy, I think, was really positive and obviously engaged a lot of the sector in in the development of it. I think seeing how that's going to be implemented is really critical here and how some of those principles of particularly around involving young people in policy making and things like that, you know, how is that actually going to become meaningful and important for the sector? And I think there's a real need for that sort of cross-governmental commitment to engage in policy development at the earlier stages with people who are experts in that policy. And I think sometimes at the moment it feels like you're being invited to have a discussion or to a meeting as a charity sector body because people feel like they have to. You know, they have to. They want to tick box and say, oh, we have spoken to charities. We've spoken to the sector or or whatever, and that's fine. Whereas actually, you know, if there was more maybe open listening and constructive dialogue and seeing both government and the sector as experts in their own area who can both bring something to the table, then things 
that move along the policy sort of journey, like universal credit, some of those issues could have been resolved a lot earlier, rather than maybe seeing charities as just shouting and being angry and wanting to stop things. It's actually understanding that they're trying to support and help development of a policy. A really good example of that is around domestic abuse survivors and universal credit and some of the issues that have come out that actually we were talking about when I was at Women's Aid, which was over three years ago. So, you know, those issues are coming out now. We've been talking about them for a long time. So I think that early engagement, which is open and positive, is really, really vital here. I would definitely agree with all of all of that. I think the main thing that I would say to government is just be more positive about campaigning. Really recognise its value. And as Claire says, you know, recognise that actually how it can strengthen your policymaking process and how it can really make, you know, life better in terms of, you know, changing legislation, changing policy and changing how things are delivered on the ground. And I think I've had the privilege to talk to a lot of campaigners in the sector over the years. And the one thing that is a constant message is how much you really need to go on about something until people really start to listen you know and I think government have said some all right good stuff on campaigning recently but they need to do it more and they need to just really hammer home those messages and and kind of keep going on about it and how they welcome campaigning and how it's a good thing I think if I was going to be really specific and add to that I I would say take forward some of the things in the civil society strategy so one is this idea of a cross-government group on effective engagement in the policymaking process that kind of hits to you know exactly what Claire's talking about and the second is the compact which has kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit but it's a really important framework agreement between government and the sector that sets out how we're going to kind of treat each side and one of the central pieces of of the compact was a a recognition of the, the right to campaign and if I could see anything if I had a magic wand I would say to government we need a new refreshed compact and central to that should be the right to campaign. I think one of the things for me around this question as well, it's not, we shouldn't just be looking at government. I think Mm. the people that have power in society and, you know, the ability to change some of the systems that organisations like Click Sergeant want changing aren't always governmental or sort of local politicians. Sometimes they might be private companies or so you know, social enterprises, those sorts of things. So I guess it's how do we engage the wider society and those people with power and decision making in campaigning as well. And I think, you know, things like the Extension Rebellion um, movement that's happening at the moment, campaigning now isn't just about an organisation doing it. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. individuals and grassroots movements that aren't bound by charity commission regulation or, you know, organisational restrictions. So, you know, government will have to deal with those sorts of things that isn't about an organisation campaigning, but actually individuals and people coming together to campaign and that's different and and I think that's something they'll need to get their head around as well. And then of course the other thing that that I have to mention, I'm really sorry, is Brexit. You know so much government time and the public's attention is being just swallowed up by Brexit and is there any room for charities to make an impression within that with their campaigns or you know and and how can they go about doing that? 
There's a brilliant blog, actually, by Pete Morey, which is about stop using Brexit as an excuse, <laughs> which I think is, is, is really interesting and important. Like Brexit obviously is an issue. It is all consuming for government. And I don't know if you've seen the IFG list tally of all the things that are on hold, which is, you know, quite frankly, kind of outrageous. But I think essentially Pete's point and quite a lot of the discussions that we have with campaigners is that the space for change still exists. It's just that we have to be a bit cleverer about what it is that we're asking for. And whilst perhaps it might not be about those kind of big macro changes that require massive, you know, new legislation and new new ways of thinking, you know, it, it might be about some really kind of small uh, and targeted things that, that we can achieve. And there clearly are huge challenges. People are so busy. Politics is is a bit of a slog at the moment. It's really hard to cut through the noise. Divisions are becoming more entrenched. Inequality is spiralling. But as Claire was just talking about, there are some huge opportunities as well. People, particularly young people, are so aware and engaged in what's going around them. I think businesses are increasingly more conscious about their impact. And I think that opens the door to some really creative campaigning. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think I wrote a blog about this with my colleague Sean, and we talked about how actually MPs want something else to talk about, the media want something else to talk about, you know, your organisation supporters who actually, so for Click Sergeant, that is parents or young people and children who are going through a cancer journey, they don't want to hear about Brexit all the time. Their life is carrying on. They're still going through cancer treatment. They're still living with the financial impacts of cancer. They want to hear us and other charities speak about the issues that are relevant to them day to day so actually I think there is that space and I think as Chloe said I think people are open to that and there is capacity for change you know if all else fails use the time of Brexit to do some real planning and strategic thinking about your campaigning rather than just sort of thinking oh there's lots of Brexit stuff on so let's just sit back and do nothing (laughs) well I don't think any campaigners think that but you know I think there is definitely space there and I think it can be used very well yeah I always think about campaigning as being a little bit like a like a treadmill you know and like as the incline kind of gets harder campaigners just kind of go harder and faster you know we kind of respond to the environment Mm. and I think that's one of the brilliant things about campaigning. Which is interesting because that brings us on to our next question that one of the issues named by respondents to the SMK survey was that some charities are increasingly less certain about when how and how boldly to campaign so is part of the problem that charities have become more timid and how do they go about kind of getting more confident? I do think you can feel as a sector, and I know that the Sheila McKechnie Foundation report talked about this chilling effect, and I think you can feel that if you look at beyond sort of maybe larger charities that have more agency and power and people are unsure what to say or how to say or who they can say it to and and things like that. And I think there's a real need for me to move campaigning away from like, oh, it's just political business to you know as far as I can see all the campaigners that I work with are about creating system changes and whether that be a national level a global level you know your local council level like we are talking about system changes and campaigning works with politics and politicians because often they have the power and decision making to make those changes so I think turning it on its head a little bit and talking about it as as a system change and you know changing 
policies like hospital car parking or other things I think people are able to better understand it like that rather Mm. than just sort of oh we're lobbying politicians and obviously that's a really important part of campaigning but we all know a lot of it is engaging the general public in your campaign raising awareness you know garnering support so that's not everything so I think changing that dialogue around campaigning would be helpful and maybe help people feel more secure in talking about issues that they they feel that they have a duty to advocate on. I think it's quite important to to distinguish between charities perhaps being timid and quiet and charities actually being a bit more sophisticated about their campaigning strategy. We see quite a lot of that going on, you know, people thinking about how they can involve the public, how they can target different audiences, how they can go for those incremental kind of gains rather than just this kind of big set piece campaigning that's very loud and very visible on a kind of a national a national stage and kind of leading on from that you know is there any other advice you would offer charities about campaigning in the current environment I think we've touched on it already think about what you can achieve without any government involved at all think on your feet things are always shifting at the moment you know the levels of uncertainty (laughs) that campaigners are dealing with now I think is pretty unprecedented and so things are always shifting and therefore campaigners need to have a really good eye on where the opportunities might be and I think also that planning that we were talking about thinking long term not necessarily thinking about what can we achieve right now but what could we achieve in five years 10 years 20 years even you know campaigners have made such incredible progress over the last kind of few decades and I think it we have to take that long view I was actually chatting with my team and some other people recently about what makes us good at what we do like what is the good stuff here and you know one of the resounding things that they said is like we keep it simple so We keep it simple in terms of what our focus is and we keep it simple in terms of how we try and explain it. And I think, you know, really good advice that someone gave me is step outside your world. Not everyone knows who Click Sergeant is or even that children and young people get cancer. So step outside your world. Think about what it's like to have no awareness or engagement of those issues and how would you explain it to someone? So I think sometimes we get really sort of in-depth and insular about what we're talking about and why people are engaging and actually there's lots of stuff going on all the time social media just amplifies it and so I think it's really important to take a step back keep it simple if you can make it easy for people to support and engage you and also something that we've learned over the past few years at Click Sergeant as well is campaigning on issues that have a day-to-day relevance to people just really it makes such a difference because they are living that and they can see that you you feel you have to advocate with them on those issues and they sort of really get behind it and really support. And I think that's so valuable. And that's where thinking about the challenges of like, how do you genuinely like co-produce campaigns and some work and things like that? You know, we do a lot of involvement and asking young people and parents what they think and what, what they want to see. But actually, I think it is a challenge for us and other charities. Like, how do you co-produce genuinely and Mm. really involve people you work with and people you support in doing that? Because at the end of the day, you'll get a much more relevant, engaging campaign out of it. 
I would add to that. I think, you know, as campaigners, I think they are incredible in terms of they're always looking to learn, always looking to upskill, always looking at other examples mm. across across the charity sector generally. And, you know, you can definitely see that trend and that centrality of making sure that people with lived experience are just put at the heart of everything in terms of campaigning. There's been some incredible stuff. I really liked the um, Save the Children Mums on a Mission approach where they were taking people with issues around universal credit and childcare into parliament and they did some incredible work and it was just fantastic to see and I think that that idea that campaigners are always learning there's some there's some fantastic stuff out there we've got our own campaigns conference there's the certificate in campaigning there's campaigns boot camp you know there's so much kind of going on and I think it's really important to find people outside of your own organisation that are your like campaign peers always debating what's what's kind of new and what's interesting and what's what's really valid and what's kind of cutting through. Claire were there any kind of campaigns that you've seen recently that have really just caught your attention and you think they're really good? I really love the shelter campaign around DSS discrimination and that's sort of touches on what I was talking about before because that is tackling and directing it at companies rather than the government necessarily. So I think it's really interesting to learn from them. And I love the Scope for Change programme. It scopes campaigners sort of training programmes. So they do like a whole six month programme. And then the participants like graduate in Parliament and get a certificate and then sort of go on to do their own campaigns. And I think that for me is like the way forward in terms of supporting people with the skills and confidence to make change happen for themselves brilliant i love it fantastic and uh, that seems like a good place to leave it um claire chloe it was a real pleasure talking to you today thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you you won't have missed that climate change protesters have been occupying london's busiest areas this month protesters often argue that direct action is the best way to achieve change particularly when the cause is urgent The likes of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth have come out in support of Extinction Rebellion's actions. But protests like these can pose a dilemma for charities. They have to work with government, so getting involved in direct action can be a fairly risky strategy. So I visited protest sites at London's Oxford Street, Marble Arch, Waterloo Bridge and Parliament Square to ask the Extinction Rebellion protesters what they feel the role of charities should be in all of this. Well, I think what they're doing already is great. I do do think they could endorse Extinction Rebellion as a start, just publicly get more people involved i understand they can't necessarily join in for legal reasons or it might lessen their lobbying power or whatever but um i do think yeah they should definitely get the word out and encourage people to join us i really like the fact that some of the big organizations greenpeace for example and friends of the earth are supporting this movement um i think lobbying and campaigning and email petitions all that kind of thing is very very useful um, but it needs to be combined I think with direct action because that's too slow a process and you know we've been doing a lot of that work for many many years and it's not had the impact that we need. There's a role to inform people so I think any big organisation has, has, has a duty really to let people know um, so whether they're organisations with uh, members of the public as members they should be letting people know. Supporting budget yeah getting the word out I think is the kind of the, the key thing and then I guess it depends on the organisation and what their focus is you know if they're involved in the environmental movement then you know direct action lobbying you know it depends where their kind of remit is and kind of what what their powers might be they have developed a lot of media savvy skills mm. i think that's terribly important yeah. i wonder if there is an area there where that could be shared because yeah. uh, i think when people are coming up from the grassroots i mean certainly you know i'd be the absolute last person because i can just about use email and that's about it <laughs> 
and also I don't have the interest in it, you know. Yeah. Whereas I think young people do. I think, but a lot of, for instance, the campaigns that a lot of the larger mm. charities do are very swish. They're very slick, yeah. very professional. Have to be. I just wonder if there's any connection there that could be made. After last month's discussion about toxic workplaces, I think it's really important that we also talk about mental health in the workplace. We're holding our fundraising conference on the 22nd and 23rd of May, and Minds Emma Mamo will be presenting a seminar exploring how we can create mentally healthy charity teams. So I met with her Mind colleague Dane Kramberger to get a bit of an insight into how you can support your fundraisers ahead of time. Dane, thank you very much for joining us. What does a mentally healthy team look like and how can managers go about creating that? So a mentally healthy team in very broad terms is about having a team that's happy and productive. And there are several things that underpin a happy and productive team. So one of the real key things is having real clear processes involved and having clarity over roles and responsibilities, making sure everybody knows what they should be doing, when they should be doing it. And really good communication is really important to that. And that's not just about communication about workload, but also how each other is feeling, you know, having open discussions about mental health, physical health, just health in general. So we know how important that is in terms of how your health impacts on your performance at work. So it's really important that everyone has a good feel for how each other is feeling. And when somebody is struggling, that other members of the team are able to support them. And, you know, everyone's focused on what they're doing on a day to day basis. You know, everyone's quite heads down and you're wanting to get on with your own work and it can be difficult to spot when somebody might be struggling with their workload or struggling with with, with their mental health. So really creating that culture in a team where open conversation is encouraged and, you know, managers have a really key role in creating that environment and fostering that culture. And they can do that in really simple ways. I mean, I, I manage a team myself and, you know, it's about embedding those conversations into business as usual. So when you're having team meetings, just have that temperature check at the beginning saying, hey, guys, how's everyone feeling? Scale of one to 10. I mean, that's what we do. That's just that's just kind of an example. But so it's about talking about it normally, not just when it's very clear that somebody is really upset. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's obviously there's team meetings, but then on a one to one basis, whenever we have one to one discussions with 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 staff. So. As, as managers talking to people that you manage as part of one-to-one conversations, having that conversation then, how are you feeling? How is work impacting on, on you? How can I as a manager support you? And as managers, we use these tools called wellness action plans. So those are free tools. You can download that from the Mind website. But the wellness action plans are a really useful tool for a manager and employee to use together and often important to create that together as, as, as two people talking about the impact of mental health on, on your work. So wellness action plan covers things like what are the things that keep you well at work. So that might be taking a lunch break every day, getting some fresh air, making sure that I'm not at my desk for, you know, long periods of time, making sure I actually have some desk time and run meetings all day. <laughs> so there's these are just really practical things that you as an employee can say to your manager, look, these are the things that keep me well at work and I'd really like to have as much of that as possible. But then the wellness action plan also covers things like what are the triggers for poor mental health at work? So things like getting interrupted a lot, you know, in an open plan environment, that happens a lot at mind. <laughs> and I'm sure in many open plan offices, you know, things like I it really, it really stresses me out when I get like hundreds of emails and I've got them all sitting in my inbox and I haven't cleared them down and, and filed them away. So it's talking about what your triggers are, but then also what impact that that has on you as an individual and what impact that could have on your performance. So as a manager, you can look at those 
and kind of go, right, well, these are the things that you're saying are triggers for your feeling unwell at work. What, what can we do to mitigate those things? And let's try and get as much of the things that keep you well at work in place as well. So that makes a lot of sense because I feel like there's been a lot of kind of conversations lately about the importance of being open about mental health, about talking about when you're struggling. And how, how do we encourage people to, we've sort of touched on it a little bit already, but how do you encourage people to talk more about it? And how do you ensure that tra- actually translates into support rather than just, oh, you're struggling, cool. Yeah, just a conversation that sort of ends there. It's a really important question and one that we get asked a lot because there's this there's this feeling that openness is the answer to everything. And then if, you, if you're open about your mental health, you know, you're automatically going to get support because you've disclosed a mental health problem. Obviously, that's the ideal and we want that to be the case. But we need to bear in mind that not everyone is comfortable disclosing that they have a mental health problem or that they're struggling. And it's really important that you create a space as a, as a manager, or as an organization, particularly you know senior leaders talking about mental health openly. It really gives the rest of the organization that permission to talk about mental health openly. But it's really about creating that space for for individuals to talk about it and as i said those that could be practical things like temperature checks in in meetings or having well-being days specifically dedicated to mental health what signs can you be looking out for that perhaps your colleagues are struggling and and what can you do to support them just you know someone you don't necessarily manage but somebody on your level it's difficult sometimes for people to spot signs and symptoms because they don't they're not always obvious and the, the easiest way is just, as I say, having those conversations, having forums for those conversations. But then also, if you notice anything slightly, you know, off with someone, just the simple, how are you? You know, what what's going on with you? How are you feeling? And making sure that you're coming at it from a non-judgmental way, coming at it from an open perspective and not assuming you know what that person is going through even you know for me I experience anxiety and you know when somebody else has told me they're experiencing anxiety it's so easy to go oh I know exactly how you feel but their experience of anxiety might be completely different from mine because the triggers might be completely different so it's important to just listen and actually hear what that person is saying about the impact that it's having on them and in terms of supporting them it's really about being armed with the knowledge about what support exists both within your organization so you know does your organization have an employee assistance program, occupational health, you know, HR, and knowing where to direct people to support within the organization, but then also outside of the organization. So, you know, your GP support groups dialing 111 or, you know, if it's an emergency, 999. So being armed with that information when you're having that conversation is really, really important. And how can you take care of your own mental health as an individual? So it's really different for different people about what keeps people well. There are some broad things that, you know, we know keeps most people well. So getting a good night's sleep, that's so often underestimated. For me personally, I think sleep is just so key to me. My whole day is dictated by whether or not I've had a good night's <laughs> sleep or not. You know, exercise, diet, all of those things, all of the kind of the things that we generally talk about that keep ourselves well. But really for you as an individual, it's important to invest time in your own mental health and think about what is it that actually I enjoy doing? What is it that makes me feel well and happy and productive and motivated? And really carve out that time in your day to do it when you don't have those boundaries between work and outside of work you know we take our phone you know to our phones home with us and you know it's, it's so tempting to sit on the sofa and you know watch tv and i'll oh, just check the email and and particularly <laughs> i think for people in the charity sector that can be quite hard because they you know they're there because they believe in the cause absolutely yeah. everyone who i work with is so dedicated and committed to the cause and a lot of people have their own lived experience or you know they have experience of, of a family member who's who's had mental health problems and so 
it's that dedication that d- drives people to kind of go, oh, I really want to do as much as I possibly can. But there's the old analogy of a lumberjack using a saw to cut through wood. And, you know, he keeps cutting through wood and trying to get through lo- loads and loads of it. And then ultimately the saw becomes blunt and he's working really hard to try and get through all of it. But if he doesn't take time to sharpen that saw and the yeah, analogy there being taking time to look after yourself, rest up, and then you can come back to work more happy and productive. So really dedicating that time to yourself. Brilliant. Dane, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. Really good discussion. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode next month. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Claire Laxton, Chloe Stables and Dane Kramberger for joining us, to the producer Anushka Tate for Rethink Audio and to you for listening. 